Earlier this month, a prominent Canadian academic made headlines when he announced his departure from the University of London. Progressive conformity and cancel culture are distorting the teaching and research missions of universities, he wrote on Twitter. Between the extremely controversial and the progressive-controlled monoculture of academia is a vast and growing zone of unspoken truth. Eric Kaufman is an author and a professor of politics at the University of Buckingham, where he is set to establish the Center for Heterodox Social Science. In January, he'll launch a new, low-cost online public course titled Woke, The Origins, Dynamics, and Implications of an Elite Ideology. Eric Kaufman is my guest today on Lean Out. Eric, welcome to Lean Out. Great to be here, Tara. Very nice to have you on. You have made news recently. After two decades, you chose to leave a tenured professorship with a pension at the University of London. What made you feel like you needed to take that leap? Well, yeah, so I, I've had about 25 years in the system in a way and, and well over 12 years as a professor. But a number of things have started to happen. You know, I probably about starting in 2018 became a little more outspoken, let's just say, in my criticism of aspects of the social justice movement. You know, and I wrote a book for Penguin in 2018 called White Shift, looking at populism. And essentially, it was largely explaining the phenomenon as I saw it, but also you know, my view on it was not as critical, perhaps, as, as some would have liked. And in any case, the combination of all that was leading to a certain amount of, let's just say, harassment from the radical element uh, in the staff, and more so the students. And yeah, with all this this kind of pressure, I felt there were certain things I was self-censoring on. And I thought it would be nice to be able to get to a freer place where I could explore and research some of the questions that I was interested in. And, and the University of Buckingham is the kind of, it's an independent, one of the few private universities in Britain. It has a somewhat different origin than other universities. It was founded by Margaret Thatcher in the 70s. Now it still leans left, but it's a little bit more diverse, let's say, ideologically than other places. And so, yeah, the leadership is very much in favor of a free university model. And, and I was kind of attracted to set something up there. This plan that you have includes teaching a course, possibly the first in the world on this subject titled Woke, the Origins, Dynamics and Implications of an Elite Ideology. Tell us what you mean by woke and what will be on the syllabus. Yeah, so woke, I, I always have a single sentence definition. I think it's empirically tight, and that is it's the making sacred of historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual identity groups. Once you sacralize these groups, you then, then any kind of criticism of even the most sensitive member of such a group or the hypothetical most sensitive member of such a group becomes cause for excommunication or cancellation. Uh, it's also the case that you can't criticize those who speak in the name of. So the social justice movement, be it on race, be it on transgender, etc., in criticizing that, you essentially also transgress the sacred. And so that's sort of how I'm defining woke. And and the course is really going to look at the intellectual history and origins, even going back a couple of hundred years, tracing it through, but then also talking a lot about the public opinion 
uh, by age, by gender, by ideology, and then how it's affecting elections and politics, which is, I'm a political scientist, so I'm interested in that, the culture wars and politics, and then finally looking at the philosophical underpinnings and critiques. So interesting. And um, I just want to, while we're talking about your departure, I just want to refer to your employer's response to you calling it quits. They said in a statement that they are, quote, committed to free, robust and open debate among all members of the college community, that they have policies in place to enable free speech and procedures to investigate and act on concerns. And they say you left at your own request as part of a departmental restructuring. You will likely be accused, as I was when I left the CBC, of orchestrating your own cancellation as a springboard to a new career, that you weren't forced out, that you left on your own accord. What What is your response to that? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is I think maybe in contrast to your situation, I don't think the higher ups or the top parts of the university are the problem in this case. The leadership is actually reasonable. Uh, it was much more the radicals trying to put pressure on the institution and particularly some of their sympathizers in the lower levels of the university. That's really where the, the pressure was coming from. They were just trying to navigate the situation. Now, of course, so, so what I had was, well, you know, several Twitter mobbings, an open letter. I had internal investigations, which are actually just prompted not by the university, but by inter, by complaints being made by staff and students, right? So that's what drives these. And you get the email in your inbox and says, you know, there's been a complaint against you, all of this legalese. You've got to show up at this place at this, t-. you know, it's quite sort of frightening. And this is kind of the the sort of punishment apparatus that has been developing in organizations. And so it's the combination of these radicals who know how to weaponize the punishment apparatus to to essentially get you on your... And, and once you're out of academia, there's no getting back in because, you know, there's hundreds of applications for every job. Um, gossip travels very fast. It's a collegial profession. So it's more or less a death sentence. And they know that. And, and so I guess the, the anxiety that that creates is pretty powerful. So I think the idea that I'm, I'm kind of making this up is, is, is not true. What I would say, however, is yes, it is true that the university went through financial difficulties. There was a, uh, redundancy process. So that was definitely a contributing factor. That's true. But there's no question that this sort of pressure, I was looking really to leave and looking for an exit. And so that was a, uh, just a contributing factor. Mm. And I'm, I'll be really interested to follow your work and especially this new course coming up. And you you say that your aim is to, to promote objectivity and viewpoint diversity, not indoctrination or narrow limits on the pursuit of knowledge, something I'm very much on board with. Um, but how are you going to ensure that you don't end up going the reverse of the identity obsessed academics and teaching with, like, say, a hardcore anti-woke conservative slant? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I'm sort of just presenting a, a, a intellectual history, different versions of that history. You know, we do read, you know, we'll read it somebody like a Judith, Judith Butler, or we'll read some critical race theory or so it's not as though, and, and I guess, you know, I guess if everybody is more or less on one page, then it's my job to essentially, and I don't think they will all be on one page, but it will definitely be my job to try and present the other side to say, well, maybe they've got a point and, and maybe they do have a point, right? So this is the idea is to, to have, I mean, ideally it would be a mix of different views. And I think it will probably pe- be people across the um, political spectrum, but there probably won't be very many people who are all out social justice warriors. No, that's unlikely. But we do want to have discussions about things like speech boundaries, about 
equal out is there any any sort of merit to any kind of equal outcomes type egalitarian politics i mean these are the kinds of debates that i do want to have and i do hope uh, we'll be able to have so yeah i and, and i guess i just want to approach it really in that more empirical way so comparing competing theories I and mean, is this about status luxury beliefs is it about you know marxism and when class went away and identity replaced it is it about shifts in civil rights law you know there are a bunch of different theories now emerging i mean none of this is being taught yet really in academia but it's an interesting debate to have and it deserves to be in academia well and as you say this this ideology is incredibly incredibly influential and th- there has been a sort of lag in dissecting it and thinking about it and talking about it critically one of the recent books that came out that I know you read was Yasha Monk's book, The Identity Trap. He was he was recently on. And the, the question I just asked, I, I have been thinking about a lot, this idea of reactionaries and how do we who push back on identity politics avoid becoming reactionaries. Um, so I look at someone like conservative activist Chris Rufo and his groomer campaign, and I get concerned. I, I feel like that campaign really fed into blatantly homophobic stereotypes. I, I know you recently reviewed his book along with Richard Hananias, another thinker I have concerns about given the racist and misogynistic trolling he engaged in in his early 20s. Um, how do we criticize identity politics without going reactionary, without feeding into an ugly backlash against minority groups? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because I do think there are a lot of pride, a lot of problems with with woke ideology, one occasionally you'll run into somebody who is able to, who is willing to play the, let us call it, uh, conventional, scientific, variable-centered game, and and to have a discussion, right? So, so let's talk about speech boundaries. You know, what is the argument around harm, harmful speech? Yeah, I, I think you can occasionally find some good faith actors who are willing to sort of have a conventional debate, evidence-led, falsifiable, all of these pauperian things. Uh, I think to the extent we can find those people, maybe we can draw them out and be able to have these productive conversations. Um, So the problem, of course, is that if you're dealing with somebody for whom really this is religious and you are either sacred or you're profane, and, and, you know, then it's just Unfortunately, I'm not sure that it is possible. But but then, of course, you're right that there are those on the right. I mean, one of the problems is this ballooning of the meaning of woke to include things around you know, green politics, vaccines, anything that people don't like becomes woke. And I think that's also that's also a sort of stretching and kind of inflating and devaluing of the term. I think it's got to, it's got to be remaining uh, relatively focused in order to be useful. Um, and yeah, and of course, some of the activists, you know, and I, I do think Chris Rufo had, makes a lot of good points, but I do think the groomer campaign, for example, uh, you know, is, is something that I would not support. Um, I wouldn't support, I, I am more of a believer in achieving a kind of balance in these institutions and neutrality rather than replacing one ideology with another. And so I think that's another difference, perhaps. Um, and Hanania, I mean, I think he, he does say some crazy things that I think that's, that's definitely the case and things I, I, I strongly disagree with. His book, however, I think makes a lot of interesting points around the gradual evolution of the civil rights and equality law, uh, sort of incrementally moving towards a radical position, which, so the book itself is actually quite a, a, a sort of legalistic sane analysis. Um, and I think I can, we can engage with that. I mean, I think it's too legalistic for me. <laughs> I think it's sort of 
brings culture in through the back door in many cases. But still, I think it's a worthwhile book to to read. Hmm. And I, I guess sort of moving on from the more controversial conservative figures, I want to talk more about mainstream conservative thought and about viewpoint diversity, which is one of the themes of this podcast and where things are at with that in Canada. So in 2021, you put out a study which showed that 73% of Canadian social science and humanities academics from the 40 top ranked universities identify as left wing with just 4% identifying as right wing and that 60% of Canadian conservative academics Academics say there is a hostile climate for their beliefs in their department. This compares to 9% of left-wing faculty. You also reported some academics are self-censoring in their teaching and research. What are the social consequences of these numbers? What, what are we looking at here? Well, I think what's occurring in the culture industries, uh, such as universities, is you're getting this viewpoint homogeneity. Another study came out by Zach Patterson and Chris Dummett, which from the McDonald Laurier Institute showed very similar numbers. So you're getting a sort of roughly 10 to 1 left to right balance now in academia. The other thing that both our stu- my study and their study showed was that younger academics are much less tolerant than older academics. So a young leftist versus an old leftist, we're not varying the politics, even a young far leftist and an old far leftist, the young leftist is sort of twice twice as intolerant, twice as willing to endorse a cancellation campaign. So I think the direction of travel is actually towards a more illiberal kind of leftism going forward. And I don't think that so even though we might have peaked in terms of cancel culture in 2021, I still think the future looks a little bit bleak, really, to be honest. And yeah, I think that's going to shut down a, a lot of perspectives. I mean, there's been a lot of work on conformities. Cass Sunstein's done work on that, shows that the more uniform the the politics is, is, an, is in an organization, the more it incentivizes fundamentalism. People kind of, people push each other towards more extreme positions. They they lose track of where the center line is. I think that's one, one thing that's occurred in academia in, in North America because of the skew, which has gotten worse over time. Uh, studies in the U.S. and Britain both show it's it's shifted from something like three to one, like in the social sciences in the U.S., three to one left to right in the mid 60s to something like 12 to one. So it's it's been a big change over. It's always leaned left, but it leans a lot more left now. The other thing is, if you are in the minority, even if left and right discriminate against each other equally, if you're in a room of 10 people, nine are against you and they're discriminating against you and one is for you and discriminating in favor of you, the net effect of that is you are going to receive a lot more discrimination in terms of jobs. So in the study I did, about 40, 45% of Canadian academics wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter, 40% of American academics wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter, and Britain, it's a third, wouldn't hire a known Brexit supporter. So what this is going to mean is essentially if you are you know, if you are a gender critical feminist, if you're conservative, you're just going to keep your views to yourself. You're going to censor in research, censor in teaching. Again, studies have shown that people cannot identify conservative uh, academics in the, through the work they write, whereas they can identify progressive academics through the work they write. Because conservative academics do stuff that is not going to be seen as political. They do sort of neutral. Uh, So they basically, in some ways, hide their views. In some ways, they veer towards more technical subjects to avoid 
the opprobrium that would come with being identified or outed as a conservative. And because you have to get hired, promoted, research grants, papers accepted, it's a collegial profession. And so you kind of can't afford to really ruffle feathers. It, it is interesting. I mean, I, I certainly saw this in the media. I uh, I tried at one point to think if, if, you know, I've been in the media 20, 22 years, something like that now. I tried to think, have I ever worked with an open conservative? Right. <laughs> and, and the answer was no, not not a single one that I could think of. And as you say, we need that sort of pitting of bias against bias. But also, I think in the Canadian landscape, there is a real misunderstanding of what conservative positions actually are. The sort of diversity of thought within within the conservative side what do you see when you when you look at the canadian media well i think you're you're absolutely correct that that the canadian media i mean it it in some ways resembles much of the u.s mainstream media in the sense that you would tend to have a certain pathway through elite universities the kind of people that are drawn to the student newspaper the, the, the kinds of people go to journalism school will be on the cultural left they will be kind of your the Brahmin left, as Thomas Piketty would call it. And and that's who's populating the newsrooms. And there's a group think there. And I don't quite know, you know, I think the one thing that's occurring, of course, is is you're getting independent media popping up. And I'm not quite sure in Canada how strong outlets like True North are in terms of readership and how much they are able to sort of change. Here in Britain, we the news side has always been pretty balanced in terms of left and right, unlike in Canada. But the electronic media has also leaned very left. There's now a new channel called GB News, which is sort of pushing the other direction. So you are getting, I think in media, the barriers to entry are not as high as in academia. It's harder to set up new university systems, uh, but to, to set up a new outlet is possible. I don't know how long it will take to sort of balance out the the ecosystem, but that that at least... I mean, it's ideally you would like to have viewpoint diversity in every outlet, but the second best is to have at least a balanced media ecosystem. In my sense in Canada, maybe you can give me a better sense of that, is there really isn't that. It's largely one way uh, with just some small independent media. Yeah, I think that's definitely an accurate description for sure. I don't think there's a counterweight here at all right now. Yeah, I should say that I think that's made a difference. So for example, the media here has been very important on the free speech in universities question and has really knocked back. I mean, the the media criticism has actually forced a number of universities to back down from what would be quite illiberal policies. And without that capacity in your media, it's not like the Canadian universities are, they're not under, my sense is they're not under the same pressures so they can bend to the activists. Well, and I'm glad you raised that because I wanted to ask you your, your research has directly informed government policy in the UK around free speech on campuses, the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill, uh, which became law this summer, I understand, tells universities they need to to protect and promote academic freedom, and universities are monitored. What do you think it would take for Canada to get to a point where it implemented something similar? Well, yeah, because the, the bills in Alberta and Ontario that just say universities have to have these high sounding statements about academic freedom, those are completely useless because unless there is some consequence to essentially prioritizing equality of outcome and emotional harm protection over free speech, then universities will continue to bend to the wishes of the social justice activists. In Britain, what we have now is an academic freedom directorate on the regulatory body for higher education. We'll have 10 people will be able to investigate universities for breaches. So this could be no platforming. It could be 
trying to force somebody out of a job or to discipline, even any kind of a detriment for speech. And because there's an office that can investigate, there's an ombudsman who you can appeal to, you can actually sue universities uh, for breaching their duty. All of these things are, are real teeth, and it goes much beyond just requiring a statement. Without I'm afraid because of the pressures, institutional pressures in universities, without having some kind of enforcement mechanism, I just don't think you can stop the censorship um, and the cancelling. So now I should say, by the way, the the higher education bill, even though it'll deal with the institutional punishment and the no platforming, I think that's only probably maybe a third of the problem. I mean, much of the problem is this peer to peer political discrimination which forces people to self-censor, and it will not be able to address that, that piece of the puzzle, unfortunately. That can only really be addressed through viewpoint diversity. And so it's a start, it's important, but it will be very far from solving the problem. Did you ever think you'd see conservatives calling for more government oversight? (laughs) No, but again, you know, there is a shift now in conservatism, right, away from the old welfare state versus tax and, sorry, tax and spend versus low tax economic conservatism to this more call it globalist nationalist, call it open closed type cultural division, which is realigning all Western countries. So yeah, I think conservatism is going through the shift from that older libertarianism to maybe a newer, more national conservatism that, that has more of a place, I would say, for governments to, to get involved in, in this kind of thing. And I think part of the, what I try to explain to more libertarian types is that you have to see societies in terms of three levels and not just two. So it's not just government and citizen. Government as a threat to citizen. It, it's government institutions and citizen. And institutions are a much bigger threat, I would argue. Maybe Canada is an exception, but in most cases, institutions are a bigger threat to people's freedom of speech. So that private censorship is really the key. And, and government can play a role actually in protecting the liberty of citizens. I mean, that goes back to... Hobbes and Locke and the earliest liberal theorists who did see, you know, government as having a role protecting people from private violence and private restrictions on freedom. So I think that rounder perspective of liberalism is, I think, needed to kind of convince people that actually government does have a role because it's an elected form. It's one of the few institutions that those who are outside this cultural left ecosystem can hope to control. They need to use government to actually reform institutions. That's my view anyway. And I, I want to talk about Canada, <laughs> turn our attention to what's happening here. Uh, it is a very extreme time in this country, and our country has been making a lot of international headlines lately, uh, with a lot of people in the UK and the US asking what has happened to Canada, including a widely circulated essay from the UK pundit Douglas Murray recently. What do you think? What's your theory? What What's happened to Canada? Well, I think Canada has always had a sort of relatively weak cultural conservative current or national conservative current to it. Uh, Political correctness was relatively strong in Canada. You had the Multiculturalism Act. You already had this attempt, which was kind of new lefty, to define the country as a multicultural paradigm. So I think this sort of soil was already pretty fertile. And then, as we already mentioned, the media is is heavily skewed yeah, towards the cultural left. And so when this movement comes in, there's really very little to resist it, even in the conservative provinces in Alberta, in Ontario. The conservative premiers, all they want to talk about is the price of gas and low tax and, and oil or whatever. There's simply 
an unwillingness to challenge political correctness in the culture. To talk about an issue like immigration is also taboo in Canada in a way it is much less taboo or it is less taboo in Europe. Um, and I think those are kind of indications that the culture was already primed in such a way that it would be a pretty, pretty easy pushover, I guess, for this ideology, which is just sort of spread like wildfire, I guess, through the institutions. But I just think that a lot of doors were already open. And you can see even going back to the 90s episodes. I remember the University of British Columbia political science department in the 90s had a one of these big ructions over racism and sexism, and no one could find anyone had said or done anything, but it was just seen as endemic somehow. And it turned into a fiasco, but just kind of an indicator that the soil was already there because Canada had kind of been reinvented as a leftist country in the 60s out of whole cloth in a way. And that hasn't re- and that's become institutionalized. So conservatism also very individualistic and economic and it's not really geared to resist this. Starting, I can see some green shoots perhaps in Saskatchewan and, and New Brunswick, but it's it's really beginning. Whereas in Britain and the U.S., there's a much stronger in Britain. The media is a much stronger bulwark. And uh, in the U.S., of course, you have a separate conservative ecosystem, which can be a bulwark. It is interesting that we are starting to see a shift in younger Canadians towards the Conservative Party in, in recent polling. Are there, to your knowledge, major differences between what young Canadians think about identity politics versus older Canadians? Yeah, I mean, this is, I should say that I'm just seen a survey that I'm doing with the McDonald Laurier Institute, and probably that report will come out in the next couple of months. And, you know, one of the things that you notice is compared to the U.S. and Britain, younger Canadians seem to be less left wing and less woke and older Canadians are more left left wing and more woke. There's much less of an age gap. I mean, in Britain, there's an absolutely massive gap between young and old in terms of voting, in terms of views on it. So something there is no question Canada looks different. The public opinion there does look different. And it may be a thermostatic thing where the young are reacting to what is essentially more more of a progressive indoctrination system, whereas in the US and Britain, where you've had Brexit and Trump and, and you have had a different climate of opinion to react against, maybe the young are more likely to go in that cultural left direction. So yeah, it's good. It's actually quite interesting to see this happening. I'm not, we'll have to watch it over a number of election cycles, but this would suggest that something quite unique is happening amongst uh, young people in Canada that looks different from from other countries. I also wonder, you know, now that we're thinking about the Canadian context, if another issue is it that there are very few old school leftists in Canada pushing back on the new identity politics ethos, whereas in the States and in Britain, you have more of that. But, you know, I come from the activist radical left. I was an environmental activist in high school. And almost nobody in those communities is pushing back on on the current, quote unquote, woke ethos. But you do see that in other countries, don't you? You do. I still think it's very small. And I think, you know, certainly in Britain and the U.S., if you ask a person where they stand on a left to right scale from very left to very conservative, you know, the best predictor of support for J.K. Rowling being dropped by her publishers, James Damore being fired, all of these sorts of questions. The best predictor is still where you stand on that left to right axis. So most on the left, I mean, I shouldn't say most on the left. There's a big, however, there's a big difference between if you say you're very left or slightly left, 
slightly left are actually much more tolerant. The other thing, of course, is the older uh, older left is much more tolerant than the younger left. And there's all papers on, that, are, that have been written on, on this. And there's a very real shift that's been noted, noticed amongst younger people. I mean, I wouldn't say, I mean, in Britain, you've got the gender critical feminists left who have been very outspoken, who have had a major impact. I mean, they are there in smaller numbers in Canada. But I, I would still say that the majority of the left are not really resisting this anywhere, I would say. I mean, politically, you know, if you look at Britain now, you look at the Labour Party, there's a very tight circle around the leader that are resisting this. But, you know, they're not necessarily coming out strongly against it, but they're trying to keep the activists at bay. But certainly if you look at the intellectual left, uh, there's not, I don't see a lot of that resistance coming from the intellectual left. It's almost all coming from people who are in some way estranged from the left, I would say. More the, more the politically homeless class. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they may have been former leftists. They're, they're not conservatives, but uh, people like Yasha or, you know, people who are more liberal. Mm. And we we should talk before we go about immigration, which, as you said just a moment ago, is a very taboo subject here in Canada, despite us having set very high immigration targets. Um, this is an area of interest in your research. I don't like doing identity throat clearing, but because it is relevant to this conversation, I'd like you to just start by telling us a little bit about your own background. You mean ethnically? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. So I've got a kind of mixed background. I'm sort of half Central European Jewish quarter, Latin American quarter Chinese. So that sort of, you know, grew up in part of my life in the Far East. So, yeah, I mean, certainly I've got a mixed background, grew up in Vancouver, uh, have seen significant immigration changing the the city of Vancouver over my lifetime. I mean, I do think that this is the main driver of the rise of the populist right, which if anyone thinks it's over, they're really kidding themselves. I think that this whole question of the legitimacy of wanting slower ethnocultural change is really, I think, one of these key questions. And I philosophically, there's no, there's nothing philosophically that, that would say that this is the same thing as being racist. You know, that you have, um, lots of psychological studies that show the difference between attachment to in-group and hatred of out-group. And they're not correlated unless you have a war situation where there's a zero-sum conflict. And a lot of this is really about attachment to a way of life, attachment to the way you you knew life was growing up. And that's somehow conflated with this idea of wanting a kind of ethnostate and a pure race. And it's it's a completely dishonest framing. Instead of talking about open-closed, we should be talking about faster and slower, coming to an accommodation. That is very difficult to do when there is this tripwire. As soon as you mention any kind of issue around immigration and ethnic change, you're immediately branded a bigot. Now, because of that taboo, that then opens up space for populism, because if that taboo wasn't there, then, you know, the Swedish moderate party could have begun talking about immigration levels instead of, you know, they were branded in 2014 by the press as racists. And then the next year, the Sweden Democrats were in on sort of 13% and went up to 25%. And eventually, all the parties then started talking about immigration levels. And the same sort of thing occurs in, in many other countries. Now, in Canada, that taboo is still there. No, no party except for the PPC is willing to touch the question of, of numbers. But I mean, if you aren't able to have a conversation about numbers, you just get one of, one of two reactions. One is you get a frustration building 
Or two, you just get people who will exit what Robert Putnam called hunkering down. They'll just move to different social networks, different geographic areas, and you'll get a breakdown of, of sort of communal ties and social capital. That, that debate, I think, does need to, to happen, but I don't think it, it's happening in Canada yet because those, the taboos are just very strong and they haven't broken. Those taboos were there in Sweden and Germany until 2015. The migrant crisis is what managed to sort of break down those taboos and change the conversation to something I think is a lot more rational, which is to say some want more, some want less. Let's have a, a conversation about the number we want. We are starting to see this become an issue in Canada. And so Abacus Data asked Canadians what they thought about Trudeau's ambitious plan to welcome approximately 500,000 immigrants to Canada next year. The results were that 61% of Canadians said the numbers were either way too high or too high, and 28% said they were about right, and only 4% said they were too low or way too low. And you're starting to see, because we are in this extreme housing crisis, you're starting to see the conversation about immigration being slowly folded into the housing crisis conversation. I guess I just wonder, I mean, first of all, what do you make of those numbers? And second of all, how do we ensure this conversation that we're aiming for, as you've just said, a rational, logical conversation about numbers doesn't turn into xenophobia? Well, I, I think that, you know, you obviously have to be careful in how you phrase things. You know, for example, with illegal immigration, I would always say, you know, I understand why these people are doing, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. You know, humanizing people who want to come to the country, I think that's right. But at the same time, I don't think that means you should hold back saying, for example, it's perfectly legitimate to want lower numbers in the country for economic or cultural reasons. And that is currently, from what I can tell in Canada, out of bounds. I mean, certainly for cultural reasons. Maybe if you said it's, a, you know, housing could be could be an acceptable rationale, perhaps, so people might be able to get away with saying that. I mean, it, it, it's sort of too bad in a way, because if the concern really is about social cohesion, and cultural change that we need to be hearing about those concerns as well and not simply taking that as some kind of an aggression against minorities especially since the all of the immigration survey data i've seen from canada consistently shows that minorities are as or more likely to want lower numbers than white canadians so it's not a, a kind of racial uh, racially divisive issue in any way. So I think that I think that's critical really to be able to have those conversations. I mean it, it reminds me a bit when Ardern was elected in New Zealand on a platform of reducing uh, New Zealand's immigration from 80 to 40,000 and that played a you know it was quite surprising that a left-wing party was promoting a restrictionist policy but it, it kind of seemed not to go, you know, did not seem to lead to any kind of xenophobic outbreak. I mean, I think this is to some degree a catastrophizing narrative. And the reality is it's not not even remotely going to happen. And I know you have faced criticism on this issue, um, in particular, a political scientist named Umit Uzkarimli, a leftist critic of wokeness, as it turns out, an author of the book Cancelled, um, once said that your work provides illiberal anti-immigrant sentiments with a veneer of respectability. How, do you, how did you think through that criticism? Well, I just think that's that's trying to stick a label on somebody to sort of toxify them rather than engaging in a point-by-point evidence-led kind of argument. Um yeah, I, I always come back to the point that if you say you want slower, you know, we can have a debate of people who want it slower or faster in terms of migration levels or cultural change. This is not the same thing as saying you want it pure and you want an ethnos. I mean, the, the, the way in which people kind of go for this totalizing narrative, they collapse 
the shades of gray into this black and white. You're either open or you're closed. And if you're you want it slower, you're closed and you're therefore a, a xenophobe. And, and that is how sophisticated the thinking is on the far left on this thing. And they just want to name, I, I don't want to say all far leftists, but there tends, there is this tendency to just want to set up this binary totalizing view of the world and just sort of name call if you're on the wrong side of the binary. I don't think that is, essentially that is the kind of opinion structure that enables populism because if the middle can't have this conversation then it's a bit, I always use the, the analogy of the official department store in the Soviet Union could sell one color pair of pants. If you wanted anything else, you had to go to the black market. And similarly here, if the, if the official parties are only offering you high migration, the only people who are going to be willing to sort of cater to that demand are going to be the black marketeers. In other words, the populace who are going to offer what people want. And so you're just, all you're doing is fueling populism by shutting down these conversations. And I want to return now to where we started talking about this quote unquote woke phenomenon. And uh, Yasha Monk tweeted recently, have we passed peak woke? He says, no, you agree not. Beyond changes in government, what do you think it's going to take for Canada to lose that quote woke nation title that you gave it and repair (laughs) its reputation on the world stage? You know, I think that's a really good question. Um, I do think more courageous politicians that are willing to push back on this in institutions, certainly public institutions, something like the Academic Freedom Bill in Britain, but also enforcing neutrality in the civil service, for example, and guarding against political discrimination and hiring and these sorts of measures. I think that's one thing that governments can do to change the tone of this. Also reflecting public opinion in in things like parental rights and in curriculum transparency in schools Britain has uh, non-indoctrination in its law in terms of schools, although the schools are not following that, but that could be enforced. So there are a whole bunch of things government actually can do. But beyond that, I think this is a, it is a long cultural game. And one of the worrying signs, I think, one of the reasons I agree with Yasha is that the younger population, certainly in Britain and the US, is just a lot more illiberal. And once they become the median employee and the median voter, I despair as to what's going to happen now. I just think the, and especially if they can infiltrate the court system, then you can start getting an activist judiciary that will not uphold freedom of speech, for example. And I think we've seen a little bit of that in Canada. Then I think we're moving towards an Orwellian system. So yeah, I mean, we have to kind of hope that we can persuade particularly younger generations coming up that'll be tomorrow's voters to try and sort of retain the objective truth, free speech-based system that we've inherited. But if we're not able to do that, I think we are probably going to lose that and move towards a system that is more about equal outcomes for identity groups and pretty draconian speech restrictions in order to protect so-called emotional safety. Well, I think it's a really important area of research, really important area of conversation. I'll be watching this next chapter of your career very closely. And and thank you, Eric, for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Tara. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.